One other transition this morning we want to mention is uh, Daryl and Rachel Schwarzentruber are sitting right over here. And you'll also see them in the center of this picture here. This is their small group. Uh, a <laughs> little bit of an oxymoron there. Not, not very small. And lots and lots of kids. But uh, Daryl has actually taken a, a job in Kentucky, returning, uh, in some ways, returning home. And this will be their last Sunday. And we wanted to say thank you so much for every contribution that you have made to this church. It's been rich and wonderful and blessings to you on the next stage of your journey. Yeah, you guys are loved. Yeah. Well, this summer, Louise and I will be visiting the Louvre in Paris with some close friends. And so I've been doing research into what we want to see to try to get the backstory to some of the art. And of course, the most famous painting in the world is in the Louvre, Da Vinci's Mona Lisa. Now, I did not know much about Da Vinci. He certainly had one of the most creative, intelligent, and inquisitive minds of any human we've ever seen. He was the ultimate example of a Renaissance man with interest in painting, sculpture, engineering, botany, anatomy, physiology, hydraulics, and more. Yet, there was a downside to da Vinci's creative genius. He could not stop thinking. One question about the origin of a thing led to another, that led to another, that led to another. Who knows what would have happened to his mind, my goodness, if he had lived in the age of the internet. Now, one author who was extremely fair to da Vinci wrote that he had one limitation that he never transcended, and that was unreliability. Such was the range, he writes, of his interest that his extraordinary mind seemed ever distracted by the next. Much was planned, little completed. Among contemporaries, he was notorious for it, close quote. And even though... Even though da Vinci worked on the Mona Lisa for over a decade, it was actually never completed and never got back to the client who commissioned it. Alas, Pope Leo X said of da Vinci, this man will never get anything done, for he is thinking about the end before he begins. One biographer, again, a very, very fair biographer, Giorgio Vasari, called da Vinci a flawed genius. He wrote, it is clear that Leonardo began many things and never finished one of them. Since it seemed to him that the hand, this is really interesting, since it seemed to him that the hand, the hand was not able to attain the perfection of art in carrying out the things which he imagined. For the reason that conceived an idea, the, the, the ideas that he conceived in his mind the difficulties were so subtle and so marvelous that they could never be expressed by the hands, be they ever so excellent. Vasari notes the sadness at the end of da Vinci's life. Close to the end, he wrote in his notebook, in very small script, uh, Vasari wondered if he was ashamed of this, da Vinci wrote, we should not desire the impossible. Da Vinci 
was trying to beat the one commodity that we could never get back, and that's time. Now, the scriptures speak to this on multiple layers. And on one layer is that by acquiring true knowledge, knowledge of ourselves, both our capacities and our limitations, we can arrange our lives according to the most important priorities. The scriptures show us that true self-knowledge only comes as we are in relation with God. His light, so to speak, sheds light on our true nature. And as a result, we can align our time and our resources according to divine design. I can focus my energies on a few things, complete what I started, and then trust him with the rest. This divine design includes the giving of spiritual gifts. This is why our understanding, one reason, our understanding of the gifts is so important. If this is your first time here, we have been in the middle of a series called Welcoming the Gifts of the Spirit. In the last two weeks, we have looked at the spiritual gifts from 1 Corinthians 12 that have an extraordinary effect, such as the working of miracles or the gifts of healing. This week, we're going to look at a different passage and a different category of gifts. In 1 Corinthians 12, it can be argued, right? Nick has said this, that those gifts, it can be argued, are situational. They do not necessarily reside in the believer at all times. They are supernatural manifestations or expressions of the Spirit. They are given according to the timing and will of the Holy Spirit. They meet the need of the moment. They reveal the love of God. They uh, evidence themselves in God given, being given glory. And alongside of those gifts, we want to place another category of gifts by its side, the seven gifts listed in Romans chapter 12. Now, we might call these core gifts or orienting gifts. They are core because one, unlike the situational gifts, these gifts are more basic to the individual. They reside in and are part of the believer's design. Every believer has at least one of these gifts. They are core because every church needs all seven. And they are core because without them as a foundation, the extraordinary manifestations would lose their grounding and get out of whack. So they're core. What do I mean by orienting? Well, because these gifts orient us. They point to us in a specific direction. And if they are fanned into flame, they provide focus and energy. Some have called these the motivational gifts, meaning they tap into what inspires us. Well, today we're going to cover three of these gifts. We'll, we'll read the passage in a moment. We're going to cover serving and giving and leadership. Now, as to the other four, we're going to cover all of them throughout this series. We've talked about prophecy, and then we're going to cover in the upcoming weeks teaching, exhortation, and showing mercy. Now, the desire we have for you is that you would identify at least one of these gifts as your own 
and then focus on developing that gift both inside and outside the walls of the church. So, before going any further, let's stand and I'm going to read our passage for today. And I'm actually going to begin at the end of Romans chapter 11. It's page 947 in the, the text there in front of you. Okay, let's read God's word. Oh, the depth of riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have all the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service, in our serving, the one who teaches, in his teaching, the one who exhorts, in his exhortation, the one who contributes, in generosity, and the one who leads, with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together while you're standing. Holy Spirit, God's empowered presence, we know that you are here. Even before we invite you, you are here in and amongst us. We pray that you would pour out your love, pour out the love of the Father on us this morning, opening our eyes to the resources you have made available to us, both for our life within the community of faith and our life in the ordinary and mundane of home and work. Father, open our eyes this morning. Come, Holy Spirit, lead us in worship. Help us to see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you were following along there, Romans 12.1 marks a pivot point in the book of Romans. Up to this point, Paul has concluded, or at this point, He's concluded this grand sweeping picture of the purposes of God and it's highlighted by his plan to redeem and restore the world. And all Paul can say with sheer wonder is, oh, the depth of riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. Now, inscrutable is actually a really cool word. It means not 
readily investigated, interpreted, or understood. That about sums up God's plan of saving rebellious human beings. And there is only one rational response to that kind of love, worship. And Paul references uh, the Old Testament sacrificial system to describe authentic worship. Worship is far more than singing songs. It entails presenting our bodies to God, placing our lives on an altar, allowing God to have all of us, just as Jewish families in the Old Testament would offer up their best lamb to be sacrificed. Worship says to God, in love you gave your whole self to me. In love I give my whole self to you. And it is our bodies that we offer up, indicating our worship includes the ordinary and the mundane, the way we live in our homes, the way we interact and function at work, the places we go for entertainment. Our whole lives are to be an act of worship. What good would be our worship if it occupied only the space within the church building? And how do we express that worship? Well, first, by not conforming to this world and the renewal of the mind. And then the next place he goes addresses our self-concept and our relationship with our brothers and sisters in the family of Jesus. And seeing yourself with sober judgment recognizes that the gift or orientation or core motivation that I have is from God. And all of this is expressed through the spiritual gifts the Father has given us. Isn't that striking in terms of their importance? He urges them here in this context to recognize the diversity amongst them. Friends, differing gifts create different perspectives. And this is so often the source of division in churches both then and now. And Paul attacks the false belief that certain, belief, certain gifts are a justification for spiritual pride. No one in the body of Christ is greater than or has more inherent worth than another. All of this underscores our interdependence. We are members of one another. We must be committed to one another to form one body. And so Paul, we see, sees the church as a living organism, that its members are both physical and spiritual beings. Jesus is our living head, his life and energy flowing into us. Not unlike the way that electrical impulses move from your brain to the organs of your body, empowering and directing them, awakening them to their proper function and use. So God moves us into a spiritual reality. The church, right, is not a social group. It's not an institution. It's not a political party. It's not a community gathering spot. We are a living, breathing organism with differing gifts webbed together by Jesus so he can do a repeat performance of his ministry through us. So this is the backdrop in which Paul turns attention to the gifts themselves. And again today, we're going to focus on three of them, serving and giving and leadership. Now here's the tact I'm going to take. 
First, I'm going to define them. Secondly, I'm going to describe them. And then thirdly, I can, I'm going to share what happens when they get out of whack or out of balance. Okay, your goal, your goal this morning is to first develop, again, a knowledge base, know what these gifts are. And then second, pay attention to the possible working of gift or gifts in your life. All these gifts, even those that appear ordinary or mundane, have a supernatural origin. Remember, the word spiritual gifts comes from the Greek word meaning charismata, which is a grace, a gift, an endowment, a supernatural ability given by God. Okay? Every gift has this. So let's roll into the gift of serving number one. The gift of serving. First thing, let's not forget, right? We are all commanded to serve, right? Galatians 5, 13 and 14. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. So, if you have the gift of prophecy, you are still called to serve. If you have the gift of leadership, you are still called to serve. But for some of you this morning, actually many of you, service is a unique drive and orientation. Now, the Greek word for serving is diakonia, from where we get the word deacon. Here's how I like to define the gift of serving. The gift of serving is super, being supernaturally empowered by the Spirit to see a need or a person in crisis and respond with urgency and practical resources. Man, it's beautiful when I see this gift in operation. The serving gift intuitively attaches value, value to acts of service that releases other Christians for gospel ministry. The individual with the gift of serving asked the question, what can I do to help? Chip Ingram wrote of this gift, and it sticks out because it's been so true in my own experience of watching this gift in operation. Ingram said, they have an unusual ability to detect people's personal needs, and to that I would add, and they think of creative ways to meet those needs. They often prefer to serve behind the scenes. They don't want to be out front, nor do they demand recognition. This is the gift of serving. Now, what are some of the dangers if this gift is not used in a balanced way? Well, number one is hiding behind serving as a way of not engaging people. You see, serving can keep others at arm's length, not letting, particularly not letting others serve you when you are in need. You know, serving in this way is not serving in the way of the Spirit, but it's actually a way of staying in control and not letting others into your life to see weaknesses. People with the gift of service can say yes to every need sometimes to the complete neglect of their own needs or the priorities of their family. Finally, people with the gift of service, because they don't seek recognition, can sometimes feel alone or even 
resentful when absolutely nobody notices. We in the body of Christ, our danger with the gift of service is failing to acknowledge our servants and taking them for granted. Can we all agree with that? Two of the most important words that I can say around here, that you can say around here, is thank you. I see you. Thank you. When I think of examples of this gift of in operation and having an effect that brings energy and power and expands the kingdom of God, there is one name in my mind that comes quickly to the surface. I'm going to embarrass some of you this morning, and I've given you no advance notice, so just be aware. The name, when I see the gift of service in operation, the name that comes to my mind is Dale Schuler. Dale is an example, by the way, of how to live your best life in retirement. And as a single man, he is an example of undivided devotion to Jesus and his work. Dale is the consummate servant opening his home to those that need housing, volunteering to help the elderly and befriending them, cultivating our giving garden, which helps uh, our food pantry and the needy, discipling young men, counseling those in recovery from alcohol and drug addiction, and much more. Never demanding recognition, never seeking the limelight. Praise God for him, and praise God for his example. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's go to our second gift, and that's the gift of giving. Not sure if I've ever addressed this gift this way before. The gift of giving. First, again, we are all commanded, we're all commanded to give our resources to God. Not our leftovers, but the first of our time and our talents and our money. One of my favorite verses on this is Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. Cheerful and sacrificial giving is a reflection of God's position in your life. When you give, it reminds you that he owns everything. All you have is his. Giving is vital to your own discipleship and growth. Many of you, many of you, and Louise and I included, based on the Old Testament practice, we begin with giving 10% of what God gives to us, what is called a tithe. It is what I like to call the first principle or a foundational practice that guides my relationship with money and with things. Of course, people can give, and one can give 10%, and then lavishly and selfishly live in all the rest, thinking you have fulfilled a duty and checked a box. This is not the spirit of worship that Jesus described. So, cheerful and sacrificial giving is a command for all of us. But the gift of giving goes beyond that. This scripture in 1 Timothy may Hint at that. Chapter 6, 17 and 19. Paul wrote, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. 
command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they might take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, you might think to yourself, wow, I'm glad that's only for the rich. I don't have to worry about that kind of giving. Hold on. We must remember that nearly all of us, nearly everyone in this room would be considered rich compared to the rest of the world. According to one site that studied this, if you as an individual make more than 60000 per year, you are in the top 1% worldwide of earners. Wow, what a, what a perspective. Here's what I like to, how I like to define the gift of giving. The gift of giving is a supernatural empowerment to go beyond the normal contribution, to give away money cheerfully and liberally without expecting anything in return. The gift of giving is both the internal drive and capacity to fund worthy projects that help people and build God's kingdom. Now, there is not a lot of scripture to go on with this gift, but perhaps it is true that with this gift, people have a unique ability to create and to manage wealth, though I don't think a person has to be rich to exercise this gift. Again, those with the gift of giving like serving don't seek the limelight. They prefer to work as anonymously as possible. They don't give in order to control others or put people in their debt or give for recognition. They are passionate about meeting needs. And something about the people with the gift of giving is that they intuitively grasp that a strong financial footing is needed for ministry to happen. Those with the gift of giving feel great joy and fulfillment in giving. It is done in freedom and not in obligation. Now, what are the dangers or possible abuses of this gift? Well, again, if this gift gets out of whack, if we're not operating in the spirit, it can go the opposite direction. I recall one man long ago, he's no longer here, who definitely had a gift of creating wealth. But while he would often make showy gifts to people, he was bouncing do donation checks to the church. You see, giving can be done. Giving can be done for recognition. And my goodness, it can be done for control. Or it can be done to put people in your debt. You know, in the world, in the world system, most philanthropy demands recognition. Names on buildings or plaques or banquets, awards given in your name. But kingdom givers operate with a different set of values because they're looking for a different reward. Now, the church can fail people with the gift of giving by treating them as more important than others or giving them an undue influence they're not asking for. And by the way, those of you here who have the gift of giving, praise God for what you do and what an important role you play behind the scenes. Know what the Spirit of God says to you this morning. That God loves a cheerful giver 
and that he who sows abundantly will reap abundantly. And by that, I mean you will reap the assets that matter the most. Things like close relationships. Things like having the people that surround you hold you with a deep respect and great affection. You know, Jesus called money a small thing. He even put Judas in charge of the treasury. Yet he said, if we're faithful in it, he will give us true riches. A former attender of ours, I am convinced, he and his wife had this gift. The husband was a high-up executive in one of the, our larger, uh, very large local corporations. She was amazingly intelligent, a PhD in one of the hard sciences. Yet, they lived in a relatively small house in an average neighborhood, drove an average-looking car, did not dress or entertain ostentatiously, and yet they gave cheerfully, sacrificially, and generously. Over time, and this is not, I did not calculate this nor report it, over time they gave hundreds of thousands of dollars. They gave first to the local church. And then on top of that, he and his wife selected over 30 nonprofit organizations that they regularly gave to. 30 causes they believed in and supported. And every, everyone who knows this man, who's acquainted with his life, I just happen to have a little bit more proximity to the, the husband than I do the wife. But everyone who knows him, one thing they will remark on is his unconquerable joy and how he continues to live his life even though he's well into retirement. He lives his life with a youthful and energetic purpose. He is rich in the things that matter the most. This is the gift of giving. All right, let's go to our third gift, the gift of leadership. This is in Romans 12, 8. This word lead here in Romans 12, 8, the Greek word here for lead means to stand before, to manage, to rule, to be a protector, to care for, to aid, to give vision and direction, influencing by example from an established reputation. Now first, again, if we look at leadership in a broad way, it's clear that though all are not leaders, we are all engaged in leadership. Husbands to provide servant leadership in the home. Parents, leadership to their children. If you are a disciple of Jesus, there will be times that in your school or in your community or in your workplace, Jesus will require us to provide initiatives that land on the spectrum of what we could call leadership. But beyond that, there is a spiritual gift of leadership operating in the church. And here's my take on that gift. The gift of leadership is the supernatural empowerment to inspire, mobilize, and connect others around a clear mission and direction. Inspired by the Spirit, this gift creates the relational context for unity, good decisions, and progress towards mutually held goals. I 
even this week as I did research on this, I just, in my opinion, I think there's a lot of confusion about the gift of leadership. We think this gift is about a certain personality type, extrovert, or a special charisma, likable, or speaking ability, dynamic. But what the scriptures reveal are leaders of differing skills and personality types and talents. David was a feeler. Yay for feelers. Paul was a thinker. Yay for thinkers. Nehemiah was a great administrator. But when he had a Bible conference, he invited Ezra. Haggai spoke plainly. Habakkuk spoke in pictures. Aaron was a better speaker than Moses. But Moses interacted directly with the Lord. Apollos spoke dynamically to the crowds in the synagogue. But Aquila and Priscilla gently taught individuals in small groups in their home. Deborah mobilized thousands for a battle to free God's people. Esther stood alone in a foreign court to protect God's people. Leadership is working all over our local church through introverts and extroverts, through thinkers and feelers, through people-oriented people and project-oriented people, through those with great speaking abilities and those we couldn't drag up here, to those with great organizational skills, to those who prefer to fly by the seat of their pants. Whatever your personality or natural bent, bottom line, here it is, the leadership gift is able to bring people to a, together to identify and accomplish a mission. Okay? Now, what are the dangers or abuses of this leadership gift? What's the dark side? Well, one, they can use people, leaders can use people to achieve their goals. People can become cogs in a big wheel. Goals are more about inflating the leader's sense of self-worth or fixing his own brokenness than they are about Jesus' kingdom. Two, leaders can idolize, they can idolize, they can make an idol of personal strength or resolve. They can do it in others because they do it in their own lives first. It, their personal strength or resolve, becomes a source of their identity rather than Jesus. And what happens is, the way that works out, is they despise weakness in others. Others who can't keep up become less spiritual. They become weak. They become second class. And finally, leaders can overlook the least of these. Because the least of these cannot give anything back to the organization. They are not strategic. Some leaders can think, I'm only going to give myself to people like the 12 disciples. Because that's only they will reproduce what I give to them. That's how Jesus did it. That's how he changed the world. Yes, that is all true. But this mentality excludes and forgets that Jesus also had a ministry to the least of these, to those who contributed nothing to his bottom line. Yes, Jesus was strategic, 
but he gave full attention to the needs of the hurting when the Father led him to that work. And yes, Paul was strategic, but he also said the poor were a priority. You know, I have so many thoughts on this dark side of leadership gift, partly because I see disturbing realities of leadership in the church, a celebrity or CEO culture uh, around leadership. You know, it's true whether it's in the church or anywhere, the wrong goals make for the wrong questions and they create the wrong trajectory. And even more so, I have so many thoughts on this dark side of leadership because for the last 30 years of my own pastoral leadership, through the power of the Spirit, I've been slowly, he's been slowly, I should say, he's been slowly exercising these false beliefs and these impure motives and this dark side of leadership from within my own heart. Praise God for his mercy, right? To use a wretch like me. I mean, it's overwhelming. It is overwhelming. And I join with that company who sing this song and, and, and share in this, this creed. He, is for, he who is forgiven much, loves much. How about this question that I've been asking? How can we fail our leaders? How can we fail our leaders? And by the way, I put myself in this box too because I have leaders that I look to. Well, we can, especially in the internet age, create pictures of the perfect leader that are composites of every leader we encounter from a distance. We want our leaders to both be tender shepherds and dynamic speakers that constantly wow us. We want our leaders to be both detailed administrators that, write, that run a tight ship and big picture visionaries. We want our leaders to be both cultural experts and quickly interpret the cultural dynamics of our day and be biblical scholars of the ancient scriptures. We want them to seek our input and at the same time, we want them to be decisive. Newsflash. Newsflash. Rare is the leader in whom all of these gifts reside. <laughs> Rare is that leader. And by the way, all of those qualities, by the way, are vital. They are vital. But for all of us, it's important that we see our leaders, that I see my leaders, it's important that we see our leaders from a holistic vantage point that recognizes their humanity, strengths, and weaknesses, and to recognize their whole person, the whole person. Now, there are some amazing examples of leadership around here. There are so many more names that I can mention. I think of people like Nathan Stosfus, who actually, he's probably out of the room right now because he's teaching He's teaching cross crew, whose heart is so big for service and is just so driven by using his hands to demonstrate Jesus' love. We were together, he and I, in Managua, and my gifts are different than Nathan. And uh, when he, he knows Spanish, and so I was able to interact with our 
friends and partners down there in a way. I, I would calculate because of the four breakfasts we had, we had about two to three hours every morning of talking. We had eight to 12 hours of conversation. I've never had that much in-depth conversation with Angel than on that occasion. It was incredibly connecting, incredibly uniting as Angel and I built one another up. And it was because Nathan was there and Nathan was interpreting. I was so thrilled about the trip. And when I asked Nathan about it, Nathan, how'd you feel about the trip? He said, well, it was really good. But it would have been nice if we could have done something with our hands, like actually done something. <laughs> See, motivational gifts, right? Motivational gifts. What, what drives us? What orients us? Um, other examples of this gift, Summer Hoppler. I'm not sure Summer is here this morning. Summer sits on two leadership boards of ministries that we are connected to. She's a wonderful leader. Aaron Carnes, for years, Aaron's right here, led wonderfully our medical clinic outreach. Again, inspiring, mobilizing, moving people and resources to accomplish a mission. That is the gift of leadership. I think of Diane Patton, who's back there, who leads our food pantry, feeding families in need every week of the month. I think of Scott Nishizaki, who's here, who has led throughout all his years here, men's ministry, deacons, life group, has been a wise consultant to us on pastoral accountability and financial oversight. I think of Dur Fallis who has mentored so many, led prayer events, faithfully led a life group for years and oversees another. I think of the mission trips that Wendy Eastwood organized. I could mention all of our life group and ministry leaders, our deacons, our staff, our ministry partners, our evangelists that we support. Now many of you think, no, 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 no. I'm not a leader. I mean, if I asked you this morning, if I had you stand up for the gift of service, many, if not more than half of you would stand up. If I asked how many of you had the gift of leadership, I'm telling you, so few of you would raise your hand. And yet you're operating if it. You're you're, you're sensitive. And I I get it, right? You, You don't want to assert yourself. But with the gift of leadership, it is important neither to worship it nor despise it. Rather, if you have it, you should acknowledge it and then address any dark side within you. And asking God, asking God to use your gift of leadership in the building of his kingdom. Trusting him, here's the the key, trusting him to purify you along the way. Remember, when seeing Him at the end of your life, God is not going to ask you, why weren't you more like so-and-so? He's going to ask you, why weren't you more like the person I made you? Did you multiply the gift within you? Or in fear and resentment, did you bury the gift? Okay. Gift of leadership. Let's review. What have we said this morning? We have covered the spiritual gift of service and of giving and of leadership. These are the gifts. Remember, we read in Romans the whole context. I read that for a purpose this morning. We give our gifts. It is a part of 
our spiritual worship, of what we offer to Jesus to be consumed and used by him however he sees fit. We are fit together with others in the local church as members of one body, Jesus as our head. Each of us has at least one of these core or orienting gifts, and they are needed for our body to be whole, for Jesus to do his repeat performance through us. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So to conclude this morning, let me return, if I could, to Da Vinci, just for a moment to conclude. And Caleb and Hannah, you can come on back up. In just a moment, we're going to return and respond to the spoken word in worship and in the taking of the elements in communion. You know, I mentioned at the very beginning of the talk that there are layers that I think speak to Da Vinci's endless pursuit that led to so many unfinished projects. You know, it seems, or not seems, it just is, that in all of his toil, da Vinci was seeking perfection. Perfect knowledge, perfect art, perfect expression of his work, and by inference, perfection in himself. And as time began to run out, as time began to crush him, as paralysis, paralysis made him unable to finish his work, and as literally his artworks began to crumble, and as his world began to crumble, he kept working, trying to work at a maddening pace, always seeking, but never found. Always seeking, but what he was looking for just staying outside of his grasp. What would Jesus say to da Vinci? And despite the fact that some report a deathbed confession, it's really likely that did not take place. What would Jesus say to da Vinci? Perhaps he would say this, come to me and find the rest that your soul needs. It is not found in knowledge. It is not found in art, nor is it found in human perfection. You see where I'm going, don't you? When we come to Jesus, here's what happens. His perfect life becomes ours. We exchange our broken life for his perfect life. Perfect words, perfect acts, perfect works. All of these, God says, when we believe in Jesus, are all deposited into our spiritual account. And all of our imperfect acts, our imperfect words, and our imperfect works are washed away. They are taken away. They are erased through the death and resurrection, ascension, and exaltation of Jesus. You see, here's what happens. A transformation takes place when we come to Jesus. 
You see, we can begin to work from a place of rest. Time no longer is our enemy. Knowing that we are complete in his sight and this reality that all of our work, your work that you desperately want to finish will reach its perfection in the age to come. The work that God has assigned you to do will reach its perfection in the age to come. If you're a nurse, you will care like you've always wanted to care. If you're a teacher, you will teach as you've always wanted to teach. If you're a leader, you will lead from perfect motives. If you're a servant, you will serve in just the right way, just the perfect way. You and your work will rise into the age of perfection. And maybe, just maybe, Jesus would say to Da Vinci, cease working, stop working. Put the art brush down. Stop. And get a fresh vision of me. Let's stand. Let's sing. And I'll be back up in a moment to lead us in taking, taking the elements.